Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 15th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always this week, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, Catherine's on special assignment. Hope we get her back next week. Uh, But we are excited about halfway through the show at um, 30 minutes in, Kyle Condick of the Center for Politics and Crystal Ball is going to join us and, and talk to us about a number of things if you've read um, his work on social media or at the Center of Politics site, uh, fascinating writings. And we're going to talk to Kyle about a lot of different things across the country. Uh, but until then, Tim and I are going to cover some national topics. I've been a little Georgia-centric lately, so we're going to broaden it back out. And, Tim, this past week, impeachment moved into, um, I guess you might say, the second phase. It went from um, – one committee to the Judiciary Committee, the Intelligence Committee to the Judiciary Committee, where they actually will bring, um, you know, should they so choose, charges. I guess they did the hearings. As far as the witnesses, the hearings weren't as, I guess, climactic because you didn't have the Gordon Sondland's and other folks um, getting called with, you know, new revelations and information. This is more the procedural step. Um, What were your thoughts on it? Well, yeah, you had, instead of fact witnesses and eyewitnesses to everything that went on, uh, those who were involved in any way in what had happened with Ukraine, you had basically uh, constitutional scholars, um, two of them uh, chosen, uh, or make that three of them rather, chosen by the uh, Democrats, the Democratic majority, and one was chosen by the Republicans. And uh, they basically sat there and said, why or why not this impeachment should move forward? And uh, it was it was pretty rowdy. I, uh, the Republicans didn't even try to conduct themselves in any dignified manner. There's no other way to put it. They they really were trying to disrupt the process and make it look, you know, for lack of a better word, disheveled to the average viewer. They were actually, some of them were screaming interrupting speakers, uh, harassing the chair constantly. Um, They began offering endless amendments, slowing the hearings down. On the second day, they were supposed to be through offering amendments by 5 o'clock, and the vote was supposed to happen, and they just kept offering and arguing and going on and going on. And Nadler actually decided to come in and gavel the second day's hearing to a close and conduct a vote on final passage the next morning, 
Republicans went nutty, but he did it anyway after a 14-hour debate. And uh, so they passed two articles, abuse of power and obstructing Congress. The total voting time the next morning, I think, was seven minutes. And, of course, it was a 2317 party line vote. And uh, now we go to the full house. Yes, and that'll be next week. And, Tim, I think you're right. The story here was not, you know, the testimony of the constitutional scholars. It was the way the Republicans reacted to things. People like Doug Collins that seemingly wanted to, you know, make a show for himself. The fact that these constitutional scholars were completely dismissed because they didn't say the things the Republicans wanted them to say, things they uh, like. And we know kind of in the current um, political era, uh, particularly with Republicans, I mean, let's just be honest here, if you don't agree with them, then you're fake. Uh, I mean, that you're not wrong, you're fake. That's, that's what they do, and I believe these were called fake scholars by some, weren't they, Tim? Mm-hmm, they were. Uh, they're, they're trying to just say that they, they've really been attacking the process. It, it's kind of hard to attack the basic facts of what went on, even though they will say, well, Obama did this and somebody else did that, and uh, what you hear is not what you heard, and when Donald Trump said us, he meant the U.S., and Oh, I've never heard the like of stuff. And there's just that this nowhere near rises to the level of impeachment, and it's a, a political stunt by the Democrats. And um, Trump, he's been tweeting furiously. He claimed it's not fair. Um, and uh, so that that's going to leave. Uh, in the future, if this thing passes, of course, uh, the, the, the Senate can make a real tough choice about how this thing's going to be conducted. Yeah, well, well, we'll get to the Senate in a minute. Now, one of the scholars um, in the middle of the week, uh, when she was talking about the powers of the presidency, said it wasn't a monarchy. She invoked the, the name of Donald Trump's youngest child, and she came under, under, under a lot of criticism. Now, the, the reaction and the outrage, I think you can say, was overblown at the time. But you could you know, say, okay, well, maybe she shouldn't have said it at the time. But then by the end of the week, you were talking about Donald Trump's tweeting. He actually was atta- uh, attacking another minor on Twitter. Actually, the second time he's uh, attacked Greta Thunberg. Um, who got named uh, Person of the Year, and I believe actually retweeted a, a picture where uh, you know his face was put on her uh, body as Person of the Year, you know, kind of convoluted and um, uh, defaced, if you will, the Time Magazine cover. Um, you know, you can talk about what happened that day in the um, Congress, but then uh, don't you think that that kind of um, makes that outrage hollow when the president does it to another teenager later in the week. Yeah, especially when when the first lady is the one that uh, opened this can of worms by, and I guess correctly, defending her, her 
child, even though nothing terrible was said. Um, the the you know her her son's name was just mentioned in the course of the thing. That was pretty much it. There there was uh you know nothing nothing really said about him. Uh, but she was correct in saying his name shouldn't be brought up. But then when her husband just took off viciously after this autistic teenager, uh, you got crickets. You got nothing being said. And this, you know, let's call it what it is, is is hypocritical. Yeah, it was really and the defense was she's a public figure and she's an activist now. Nonsense. The president's children are become public figures, whether they want to be or not. Nonsense. He's the president of the United States, and he shouldn't be saying anything. That's what he should be doing, saying nothing. No other president would lower the dignity of the office by talking like that. He's a disgrace, and what he did was a disgrace, and his wife saying nothing, that's a disgrace. And the thing to me that makes it the worst is her whole, you know, every, you know, first lady and maybe one day first spouse, I guess, is going to have their um, initiative um, uh-huh. that they work on. And she's chosen anti-bullying for hers, which is just, you know, I mean, I mean that just – her husband's the biggest bully in America, I mean, seemingly, because no one has the pulpit – uh, to turn a phrase that he does, um, mm-hmm. and so it's just so it's beyond ironic. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really just shameful because she can't keep him in control when he bullies other teenagers um, That's and right. that kind of thing. Well, so now let's get to to next week. Um, you know, the vote happens in the House. Uh, what do you expect to happen through that? Well, uh, the New York Times has been doing. A count, and uh, where they say it stands, uh, that 165 Democrats and one independent have already publicly announced that they will vote for the two articles of impeachment, and 158 Republicans. And now one Democrat instead of two, and we'll get to that in a minute, too, have said that they will um, vote uh, against impeachment. There are 19 Democrats who say they are undecided, although after I've seen some of the names, I think some of them, like Steny Hoyer, for instance, are being quite coy, and we know what they'll do. There has been no response uh, from 48 Democrats and 39 Republicans. There are now 30 Democrats who uh, serve in districts that Donald Trump won, and uh, they, most of them have not yet committed one way or the other. Those are the ones we're watching to see the final tally. I think the speaker is acting as if she clearly has the votes to get this thing done, but uh, the minority leader, McCarthy, has already publicly said not one Republican will vote for this, not one. 
So it's going to be a straight party line vote pretty much except for the one or two or however many Democrats that, that vote against it. So well, it, that's where it stands right now, and supposedly the vote is to be taken Wednesday or later in the week. Now I will say this. I will contend that it's not going to be a straight party line vote for the Republicans, that, that Justin Amash is an independent, and mm-hmm. by no means is he caucus with the Democrats. This is not Bernie Sanders. This is a guy that was a libertarian Republican for all these years, believes in a lot of those policies uh, economically, you know, but then has some principles about how he feels government should, fun- could fun- should function and just could not no longer stand with Donald Trump. And kudos to him. I don't care if he's you know, the most ardent you know, supply-sider or whatever economically. He has some principles, and, and therefore when he does vote – uh, to impeach Donald Trump, which he said he will, I think that should be looked at as a conservative Republican vote for impeachment. And let's kind of go further with this. It came out today on Political Wire. It's probably reported other places that um, he is considering – or they're considering him and trying to talk to him into being one of the um, House managers taking impeachment in the Senate. Um, one, Tim, do you think he'll do it? And two – if he does, what does this add to the complexion of impeachment? This former and essentially, for all intents and purposes, independent Republican um, leading the impeachment process. Uh, what kind of face does that give it? Well, it certainly gives it a better face for the Democratic managers of the thing and and the Democrats in general. And uh, I don't know if he'll do it because of how it might affect uh, his electability, you know, in the future, you know, for for politics for him. I just don't know if he'll do it or not, but it would be pretty nice if he did. Uh, You know, it, it would just put a better face on it, obviously. Yeah, I mean, there's, and I don't know what his future plans are. I, I don't know if he wants to go into TV, he wants to go into lobby, and he wants to run for something down the road. It could be, see, some Republicans may be playing the short game, and they're doing like um, the former governor of South Carolina, her name escapes, Nikki Haley, how she's, you know, shown no backbone, and, you know, she's uh, defending everything he says, or people speaking again about South Carolina, Lindsey Graham. But, a few smart Republicans are going to have to think this party, you know, even if it's four, even eight years, because he's younger, down the road, the folks like him and maybe Will Hurd and some others that actually have stood up to Donald Trump or not just rolled over to Donald Trump, those are going to be the folks that maybe have more future when this party kind of gets the smelling salts, if you will, because at some point, you know, there's going to be a reckoning, and that party's going to have to rebuild. They're going to have to actually follow that 2013 autopsy they wrote after the 2012 election, and somebody's going to have to run that party. And it's not going to be these characters that have just done everything that Donald Trump wants. And to yep. me, if you set yourself up to be one of the leaders of that part of the party, at some point, that's going to pay off. Plus, you're going to be on the right side of history as well. 
But right, but for right now, we know there's not going to be a, a reckoning before November of next year. Uh, right now, they they have decided as a party that they are all in with Donald Trump. Uh, Trump and his people have 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 moved to make sure that there are no dissenting voices in the party. Uh, frankly, just about every elected official in Washington with an R behind their name um, either either is totally on board with Trump as a believer or uh, they're just they're just afraid to speak up against him. Uh, you know, uh, there's the political odds are, are just not there. Uh, for them to do that, and and you know there there might be uh, two or three brave souls in the Senate, and two or three that might need to uh, you know vote for impeachment or, or vote rather to you know rem- for removal uh, in that case because they're running in states where they're facing tough elections, but. No, right now we we shouldn't expect to even be thinking about a reckoning or talking about one uh, nationally uh, uh, until after uh, the November election of next year, and then we see if Donald Trump wins or loses. And if he loses, that reckoning's coming. But if he wins, uh, what what do we what do we say then? Well, if he if he wins, that would change a lot of dynamics of a lot of things. Uh, then the Democratic Party um, would be uh, the ones need more of the reckoning, if you will, on how to function. But I'm talking not about 2020, even 2022. I'm talking about people that are really playing the long game. If he is going to step away uh, for several cycles and then come back, that's what I'm talking about. Is more mm-hmm. of that long term, if you will. But now let's um, discuss. Uh, Another topic, and sort of related, because we are going to get to the Senate and everything else down the road um, uh, with how that plays in some of these races. But let's look at the Axios report um, that – well, it's Axios article that they, I guess, were allowed to attend this event where um, uh, Brad Pascal, the Trump's campaign manager, and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner – Laid out this PowerPoint that had you know over a hundred slides, I believe, um, in Arlington Hotel, and it talked about this is the, uh, the ninety. It's a ninety-minute PowerPoint presentation. Didn't say the number of slides. Um, so they gave some. This is the plan to win. And let's kind of um, you know break this down. First point in it, it says they're going to crush the Never Trumpers, and basically they said they have. And this is what we kind of touched on. They've really uh, in their terms, ridded the party of people that oppose Donald Trump within the party. Uh, the folks that do oppose him are more of the strategist types like Steve Schmidt and Rick Wilson and Bill Kristol, and they're not you know, party activist types. Uh, and they're also mm-hmm. not in elective office either. Uh, they've passed away like a John McCain or they're uh, retired like his partner senator um, that would have had some pushback. Um, so I, I think this part of the plan, I don't know if it's a plan to win, but it, it, it's definitely true that the party of the Republicans is, is locking step behind him. Would you agree, Tim? Yeah, um, 
you, you know, I think one thing they 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 really were were pushing when they said that that they basically gotten rid of the never Trumpers. They've done it at the state level. Trump people are in all key positions, uh, party positions, in almost every state. I believe they mentioned 42 of the 50 states. Uh, That is ensured, for instance, that there's really not going to be any primary fights next year. Any person like, uh, you know, former Governor Well that's announced they they're going to run against or they're, they're not going to get anywhere. There, there's not even going to be a competitive primary in, in most states. And I think by the time uh, they, the, the Trump people get through, there may not be any primaries anywhere, which would be absolutely and incredibly unprecedented. I know that in the past, uh, even with President Obama, because basically he didn't have any opposition when he was running for re-election, that uh, they've canceled some primaries, and sometimes they do it to save money. But in this case, they're doing it to crush opposition. Um, so Donald Donald Trump, it is his party, lock, stock, and barrel. You know, David, I had wondered when he became president, if the Republican Party would have a robust group of people who would oppose him, and I mean powerful people, and the answer is absolute not, uh, absolutely not. It was the old axiom that Republicans fall into line, and they most certainly did. They moved very quickly, and they totally took over that party and it is it's not the Republican party anymore it's 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 Donald Trump's party yeah they already just rename it you know Donald Trump party because that's what it is yeah i mean the polls we've seen the party of lincoln uh, a majority of republicans think uh, trump's a better president than lincoln another poll came out and of course george washington was a federalist uh, but uh, George Washington ba- basically is within the margin of error, has a lead. But um, you know that many people think uh, Trump's a better president than George Washington. I mean, it, it is absolutely baffling um, th- mm-hmm. that Republicans think that you know this gentleman that's just not really fit for the office is better than two of the five greatest presidents or, or five most important figures in American history. Probably three most important figures in American history when you add in um, Washington's time as the general of the Continental Army. Um, Just bizarre and baffling again. Well, let's get to this next step, uh, the new math, and it talks about rural areas, and we know this has been happening. Um, Cities are more democratic even than they used to be, and um, rural areas are more Republican than they ever used to be. Uh, suburbs are going more democratic, uh, not quite like cities, but the rural areas where you would have places that would still be democratic strongholds, um, they've become more and more Republican. And uh, they pointed out like in Wisconsin, which of course was the biggest surprise of 2016, a Dukakis state that Donald Trump won. If you added up all the smallest 48 counties, they're over a fifth of the vote. Pennsylvania, the mm-hmm. smallest 45 counties, a fifth of the vote. And so while these places may not be 
uh, Madison and Milwaukee and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, if you add them all up, they're, you know, decent size. Um, you have to collect a whole lot of them. It's like saving up pennies. Uh, but if you get a big enough pile of them, uh, they, they spend. Um, what do you think about this part of the strategy? Well, uh, you know, they mentioned one state they mentioned was Minnesota. They they have long thought that because of what they had done in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, that they could do the same thing in Minnesota. Yes, uh, Trump is going to get crushed in the Twin Cities, uh, where a great deal of the population of that state is. But they believe any gains the Democrats make uh, in the Twin Cities area can be overcome um, by even larger gains in these rural areas, and that Trump could, you know, maybe eke out a tiny victory in Minnesota since Hillary Clinton only won it by, I think, three points or something like that. Uh, that that at least is their thought. Um, they they are also looking at maybe New Hampshire and Nevada and to a lesser degree Colorado and New Mexico. But I, I, I really don't think there there's anything they can do there. And they were looking at Virginia, but uh, quite obviously they're not talking about that. Pretty much as now as you might expect, but 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 that's their deal. Just double down on the rural counties and expand the map. Uh, I'm I'm a little hesitant to say that they're ready to go on offense with that just yet. Yeah, let, let's get into Minnesota, and, and I know for some reason never stepped foot in the state, but I know a little bit about their politics because I guess when Jesse Ventura ran, um, it was an interesting state to learn about. Traditionally, south of Minnesota, St. Paul, particularly the suburbs on the southern side and then all the way down um, where the Mayo Clinic is, I believe Rochester, was more Republican. But there were a lot of you know more educated voters there. Um, mm-hmm. But that was more Republican. The Northern Range was an area that was rural. It does include Duluth, which uh, I think that'll be interesting to see because that's a smaller city. Um, so it's still got a little bit of city to it. But it had a lot of uh, labor union workers, traditionally Democratic. Um, and so you had it uh, on the Northern end, and that was where you got a lot of Democratic votes. And then, of course, you had to drive out the vote in Minneapolis, St. Paul, not loose or keep close in the suburbs if you're Democrats or Republicans want more vote. Uh, And that's how the state was decided. While I have seen many pieces and different things that the um, Republicans are doing better in the uh, northern part of the state, they actually think that's one of the few pickup targets in Congress is uh, Colin Peterson's uh, seat. How much have they maxed out there, and how much of places like Duluth can you are still going to have a Democratic base? Then on the other part, the suburbs and that southern end, places like Rochester, where the Mayo Clinic is, fit that profile of people that are places that are slowly trending more Democratic. So do they pick up a few vote more votes in the northern part, but then 
drop a few in well, the southern part, and it kind of negates each other out. Tim, go further on that. Well, you know, here's the deal. Hillary Clinton actually won it by uh, about one and a half percent. Now, almost 75 percent was their turnout. Hello, this is Kyle. David, are you still with me? Um, Let me go ahead and say what I was saying. About 75% was their turnout. And Hillary Clinton won the state by carrying a grand total of nine counties, and she did it in northeast Minnesota, up around Lake Superior, and basically the Twin Cities area. Um. And all the rest of the state was won by Donald Trump. So that, that, yeah. that's, that's where we are. Okay, I, I think you're right, Tim. And, Tim, uh, right now we're excited to have on for the first time on the Kudzu Vine from the Center for Politics and uh, from the Crystal Ball, Mr. Carl uh, Kyle Kondik. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we have one of our uh, guest hosts out today, so um, producing the show is a little trickier, so I got a little tongue-tied, and I'm watching a little bit of football. My, my team's uh, finishing up right here. Um, but glad to have you on. Um, Kyle, just kind of tell us right off about your bio and um, your kind of your work in politics. Well, I just had the misfortune of watching my hometown team, the Cleveland Browns, play yet another egg this year, so I know I, <laughs> I know what it's like. Um, so I am uh, a managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics, um, and so we are a weekly newsletter. Usually, come out every Thursday morning, and we we uh, handicap uh, the Electoral College, uh, U.S. Senate, uh, U.S. Congress, U.S. House. Uh, governor's races, and we also just uh, run a lot of pieces looking at uh, American campaigns and elections. Uh, as part of that work, I end up um, just uh, talking to a lot of reporters and um, being, you know, being a source for stories to, to talk about elections. And so I'm, I'm kind of a journalist myself, but I'm also an analyst. My my background is in uh, journalism, uh, and then I've also uh, uh, just finished up my master's at Johns Hopkins uh, in government. And so I've been uh, Got a little bit of a government background, a little bit of a journalism background, et cetera. Um, the Center for Politics in general, uh, UVA, we do the crystal ball. We also have some um, civics education uh, programs that we do for uh, um, for uh, 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 all sorts of different different kinds of students. We have a lot of international programs at UVA, uh, and so uh, you know we're all involved with that. But, but my, I guess my primary job uh, is is working on our crystal ball newsletter and being the managing editor for that. Yes, that kind of, you kind of answered some of my next questions about what your work is. So you work primarily with the crystal ball. Now, I guess in the past it was more of a prediction. Uh, you came out with ratings analysis, but now you've kind of grown into you know writing articles that are um, more uh, you know topical, if you will. It's not just Maine will go this way or the other in that race. Um, 
what kind of prompted the move to do more long-form pieces? Well, I mean, we, you know, I've been with the center for eight and a half years, and we've really been doing kind of sort of a long, long-form stuff since I've since I've been there, and I think before that too. And so we've always had a kind of a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a news and analysis component to it. Uh, I think when the crystal ball first started, it sort of grew out of uh, Professor Sabato's uh, election projections that the crystal ball started in 2002. And I think over time it, it, it evolved to, uh, you know, become more of a, a kind of a, 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 you know, a full, you know, election analysis newsletter. And so we do a lot of stuff with not just talking about the elections, but also doing a lot of uh, history, which is, which is an interest of mine and, and my colleagues uh, you know, tying some of that history to, uh, to to the present day, looking at certain topics uh, in politics, uh, you know, be it in the sort of the structure of how government how government works, um, you know, certain certain governing items. Although we're we don't really uh, talk about policy all that much, in part because we try to be very nonpartisan. And, and you know, I think if you're getting into a lot of policy stuff, you might end up being um, getting a little bit more into advocacy than maybe maybe you might want to. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, again, I think we, we try to, we try to do a lot of different things, uh, and, uh, hope that readers appreciate it. All right. Well, let's get into one of those long form pieces. You, uh, helped pin one of the most intriguing, um, political pieces I've seen in a while. And it was the one talking about how Joe Biden in 2020 is much like Mitt Romney in 2012. Kind of give us your thoughts and thesis there. Sure. I was thinking about it in that uh, just like Mitt Romney, uh, you know, Joe Biden is someone who I think a lot of people have, have written off at various times in this cycle, um, maybe didn't take, take as seriously as, as uh, maybe they should have. And of course, Biden has had a lot of problems. I think just like Mitt Romney's had a lot of had a lot of problems. Both Romney and Biden are kind of uh, I, I call them sort of establishment flavored candidates and i think they they're both they uh romney in 2012 and, and biden now are running in primaries where um there are a lot of candidates um sort of further at the ideological extremes who maybe are more exciting to um the activist crowd uh in in, in you know, the republicans for 2012 and the democrats for 2020 uh and at various points the polls sort of suggested that Romney was declining. He got surpassed a number of times in the national polls, more so than that Biden was surpassed because really Biden's been leading the national polls this whole year with maybe a couple of days where Elizabeth Warren was slightly ahead of him uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, and, you know, there's just there, there's just a steadiness to Biden Biden's positioning in this race that I really thought was reminiscent to, to Romney. Now, there are some key differences. Uh Romney was the leading fundraiser in that race. Uh, Biden is not, and I don't think he will be. Uh, Romney also had a very powerful super PAC that intervened at important points in that primary. Uh, Biden does have a super PAC, although it remains to be seen how uh, how, how well funded it, it's ultimately uh, uh, going to be. Uh, Romney also had kind of a firewall early state in New Hampshire, uh, whereas Biden doesn't really have any obvious strength in Iowa and New Hampshire. And in fact, um, uh, because Biden's strength lies uh, uh, with, uh, with a lot of African-American voters, and of course, Iowa and New Hampshire, essentially lily white, uh, almost entirely white electorates, um, Biden might struggle in Iowa and New Hampshire. And so that 
might not allow him to get off to that good of a start. So, you know, there are a lot of different factors here, but uh, I really thought there were some, some key commonalities between uh, Romney 2012 and Biden 2020. Oh, definitely. That Biden just continues to just be so resilient. Now, that's kind of another uh, wrinkle to this, particularly in kind of the activist circles and on social media. You hear about how uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign attacked Bernie Sanders' campaign or vice versa. I think that case may be more Sanders supporters against Warren. And then now you hear that uh, both of them are starting to try to worry about more moderate Pete Buttigieg. Um, But no one seems to really be attacking Joe Biden's campaign in the same way. It's almost like they don't respect or think he's for real, if you will. Have you gotten that sense? And if so, why? Uh, I think you make a great point. And and there's a commonality with 2016 in that uh, remember at this time in, in the 2016 cycle, I think a lot of Republicans still had it as an article of faith that Donald Trump would, would fall off. And of course he never did. But I also think that they, the candidates did not do their best to try to knock off Trump. I mean, you, you had, you know, Jeb Bush's super PAC attacking Marco Rubio and there were other, uh, kind of, uh, diff- different kinds of food fights in, in the party. I'd say the democratic, uh, race right now, you have, uh, Warren and Buttigieg, to, to me, seem to be kind of at each other's throats. I think that might be um, a feature of this next debate we're going to see on, uh, on on Thursday night, or at least we're, we, we might see or we should see. But there's some question about the location of the debate, the labor dispute at the uh, uh, out in California where it's being held. But uh, assuming that there is a debate, uh, you might expect to see them uh, uh, mix it up. But, you know, I remember just thinking this. I, I wrote something about this uh when Biden got in or around that time, uh, basically saying, hey, hey, Democrats, if you don't want Biden, you know, Democratic candidates, if you don't want Biden to be the nominee, you have to actively take steps to make sure that doesn't happen. And here we are, uh, you know, seven, eight months later or whatever, and I don't know if the other Democrats have really acted aggressively against Biden. Uh, Now, that said, you know, one who did was Kamala Harris, who benefited in the short term after that first debate, but then uh, her campaign, you know, slowly fell apart. Now she's not even a candidate anymore. Um, And it's easy for me to say as someone on the sidelines uh, telling these democratic campaigns, Hey, you know, your your best, your best option here is to attack. They may not think that's the right idea. uh, And maybe they're right about that, but uh, I just, that, that that was uh, uh, something that that I think was pretty similar uh, between Biden 2020 and Trump 2016, not necessarily Romney 2012, although I think Romney also benefited from uh, split, kind of splintered opposition and uh, splintered opposition among people who were all more kind of ideological extreme than he was. Uh, And you you could arguably say the same thing about, about Biden's opposition too. Yes. Well, I think this race is going to continue to be interesting. There's so many more uh, facets to that. But I had to ask you another question about it as we go to the general, no matter who the Democratic nominee is. um, Everybody keeps talking about a handful of states and Sunbelt states like uh, uh, Arizona and Texas and Georgia being in play. And then, of course, there's those Rust Belt states from last time. Uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan in play. Trump trying to, I guess, the campaign say Minnesota's in play. But 
traditionally the two big states, I guess, that everybody talks about are Florida and Ohio, your home state. And um, you wrote a book, uh, you know, how Ohio has been, you know, perennially, and we're going way back in history, the bellwether state. Do you think it will maintain that same status in 2020, and why or why not? Uh, I don't think that Ohio is going to be a uh, you know a make or break state in this particular election. I, I don't think it's uh, you know a 100% certainty that the uh, that that Trump would carry it again. But I think if Trump were to lose it, it probably would be part of a fairly lopsided. Democratic victory. You know, we saw in 2016 is that we had these changes going on in the electorate that were happening before Trump, uh, in that you had white voters with a four year degree sort of trending more Democratic, and white voters without a four year degree trending more Republican. Uh, and Trump uh, kind of uh, hypercharged those trends. And in a number of states where you have a, a relatively high percentage compared to the national average of, of uh, white voters without a four-year degree, and Ohio is a state like that, um, you, you saw Trump really run pretty significantly ahead of what Romney did in, uh, in 2012. And uh, so you had uh, Ohio, Ohio voted for Trump by eight, while Clinton was winning the national popular vote by two. Uh, so you had a 10-point uh, split in margin in terms of uh, where Ohio was compared to the nation. And uh, it was the furthest Ohio had voted from the national average since 1932. So even though Ohio voted for the winning candidate or the candidate who won the Electoral College in Trump, um, the state was not very reflective of the national vote after it had been very reflective of the national vote for much of the past uh, century. Uh, and I think at least in, the, in terms of 2020, you, know, you probably expect the results to bear uh, a fair amount of resemblance to 2016. Um, in terms of sort of you know which which states are more Republican or more Democratic relative to the country, you know, 2024 might be a different story when you don't, uh, you, you know, you might not have an incumbent on the ballot. But um, so anyway, I'm I'm thinking that uh, Ohio probably is going to vote um, more significantly more Republican than the nation, just like it did in 2016. Which means that if you're looking for a bellwether state, you probably would look elsewhere. Yes. One more question that kind of came up that ties these two together. Um, if you know you were someone that thought, okay, the party needs to go with someone that's more moderate, someone that's a younger, fresher face, and someone that can you know really understands um, these Rust Belt Midwestern areas, you would kind of be drawing up Congressman Tim Ryan from Youngstown, Ohio. He did run for president, but he really gained very little traction. Um, why do you think that uh, Tim Ryan uh, just was never able to um, get anywhere in this race, even though in many ways he um, was the prototypical candidate for what some people in the party might want? Well, look, I mean, there are all sorts of qualified Democratic candidates who really didn't get the time of day. and I mean, some of them are still running. You know, think about someone like uh, – Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado, uh, someone who you know has a really good resume and is still running, but has really been a, basically a non-factor in the race. And you can look at all sorts of other folks: Steve Bullock, Jay Inslee, um, Ryan himself. You know, again, people with, uh, with 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 pretty good resumes who just just never really um, got any traction. And even Ryan, um, you know, his his district uh, is kind of interesting in that it was a 
you know, district that, that Democrats, Democratic presidential candidates will win by, you know, 25, 30 points. And Clinton only won it by seven. It, it's a, a kind of a, a white working class district that extends from Youngstown to Akron in Northeast Ohio. And um, while Ryan won easily in 2016 and really won easily in 2018, too, uh, you know, his margin of victory fell pretty significantly from 2016 to, to 2018. Granted, he still won by something like 20 points. Um, but I think even even someone who is from that part of the country or even someone like Sherrod Brown, who uh, performed you know decently well in, in 2018 and getting reelected in Ohio, although, um, you know, that race was, wasn't really a blowout. He won by about seven points and, um, you know, in a good year for Democrats, um, even those folks who you could argue, have, you know, seem on paper to be, you know, the, the, the Democratic whispers to the white working class. Um, they they still suffered erosion in those those kinds of places uh, in, in their own races, and it just I think it just goes to show how nationalized these factors um, really are. I, I personally think that a successful Democrat in 2020 um, would uh, maybe be able to run more on uh, kind of bread and butter economic issues as opposed to cultural ones. I think that, that part of the problem for Democrats is that um, there are a lot of voters in the country who um, maybe are kind of economically moderate or even liberal, but are culturally pretty conservative uh, on a number of different issues. And, you know, that doesn't mean that the Democrats could or should nominate someone who was, you know, pro-life on abortion or anti-LGBT or something like that. I'm just saying that in terms of the, the race that the person who, who I think would have the best chance of clawing back some of those voters would run would be more like Obama 2012 in that it was very much of a kind of an economic populist campaign and uh, not necessarily running with cultural issues kind of front of mind. But that that might be a you know, that might be too hard of a thing to do where the Democratic Party is now. Um, and also, uh, you know, Trump, I think, is, is sort of an unusually effective Republican candidate for those kinds of voters because, rightly or wrongly, Trump was perceived as being um, a little bit more moderate than other Republicans in 2016. Uh, now, you could argue that he hasn't really governed that way, or at least on most things he hasn't governed that way, but that perception probably still exists in a lot of um, electorally important places uh, that are basically white working class areas and rural areas and small cities that um, dot uh, the, you know, the, the competitive states of the north from, you know, from northern Maine all the way up to, uh, you know, if you sort of draw a, a half circle from northern Maine uh, down through, uh, you know, through Ohio and then up toward Minnesota, um, and you look at that whole part of the country, uh, Trump was a bit better Republican candidate for a lot of those places than, than Mitt Romney was, and I think it showed in the results. Yes. Well, um, I'm going to pass this over to Tim, who's going to have some questions about some different areas. Tim? Um, yes, sir. Uh, as a matter of fact, the very first question that I'm going to ask you, we had no idea that this question or anything like it was going to be on the on the radar even when we booked you to come on the show with us. I think second, I know where you're going. <laughs> yeah. The, the 2nd Congressional District of New Jersey was one that the Democrats flipped in 2018. It is historically 
uh, one of those red districts that was red for a very long time that voted for Trump in 2016. Uh, now the brand-new Democratic representative, uh, Jeff Van Drew, has announced that he will be switching parties, uh, and he is in opposition to the impeachment. Um, and my question for you is, uh, if you've had a chance to look at this district, does that make the district, again, a GOP favored the whole district, or, or, or can the Democrats win it right back in 2020? Uh, so there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, so this district uh, covers uh, a lot of southern New Jersey, uh, so it has places like like Atlantic City is in this district, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a district that uh, Barack Obama carried twice, and then it flipped to, to Trump. And uh, for a long time, uh, Frank Lobiondo held it. Uh, a Republican representative, uh, or he held, you know, he held versions of, of this South Jersey seat. And mm-hmm. Lobiondo was 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 one of the maybe less conservative members of the GOP caucus, particularly recently, as uh, as I think the, the, the whole caucus generally moved moved to the right. But Lobiondo was someone who had labor support in the past and really really entrenched himself as a very strong incumbent. Um, but not necessarily one who was, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a freedom caucus person or something. You know, he was he was uh, uh, someone who would sometimes vote against leadership and um, really crafted, I think, a pretty uh, good political resume for his district. And so, for a long time, Democrats wanted then State Senator Jeff Van Drew to run against Lobiondo. But um, as, as I think we've seen in recent days. Uh, Van Drew is a pretty calculating politician, and he decided he didn't want to run until after Lobiondo retired. And so, lo and behold, Lobiondo retires uh, in advance of the 2018 election. Van Drew enters the race. That race was always seen as a basically a very likely safe Democratic pickup opportunity. And the Republican nominee was basically a disaster. And Van Drew won, but he, I don't think he won by as much as uh, one would have expected. I think one by something like seven or eight points, uh, and which was, which again was was kind of kind of a disappointment. And then he, um, uh, but but he always it always seemed like he would be one of the kind of least liberal members of the House, the, the Democratic House Caucus. Then of course he you know makes noise about opposing uh, impeachment. He apparently uh, commissioned a poll recently that suggested that his support amongst Democrats had collapsed. And so he's uh, he's switching parties, and so we move. We had the di- the district rate as lean Democratic, uh, and we moved it to leans Republican. Um, but of course, that still means we think it's going to be competitive, uh, and that the Democrats have a shot to win it. Uh, I also don't think that it's a sure thing that Van Drew will um, even be renominated. I would think that. Uh, he will ha- get support from the president, and perhaps that support will trickle down to some of the local uh, GOP, uh, you know, county-level parties. And you know, a key thing in New Jersey is that uh, that's it's kind of a kind of an old machine state, or at least to the extent that we have political machines in the United States anymore. Uh, you, you sort of see that in New Jersey, uh, but the the individual county parties can decide whether to give. Uh, a, uh, a candidate, the, the sort of the top line on the ballot, the primary. So uh, there's some value in being kind of the party endorsed candidate, uh, some tangible value on the ballot. 
Uh, I'm curious to see if if uh, if Van Drew gets those top lines from the GOP county organizations uh, so soon after being kind of a sworn enemy of those GOP county organizations because he was a successful Democratic state officer level office holder in New Jersey for so long. So it's a really interesting scenario. And then, of course, the Democrats are going to uh, – it looks like there, there are a number of Democrats who are interested in running. Um, you know, and I think part of the reason why Van Drew switched parties is that he was asking around for endorsements and, um, and, and looking for commitments from the county parties on the Democratic side, and they were reticent to provide that support. Um, and, and, and so what ended up happening is, is Van Drew just decided for his own, apparently for his own political survival, he wanted to switch parties. Uh, I think this is still a pretty interesting competitive race, and I think that it's probably up in the air uh, to, to some degree on both sides as to as even who the nominees are going to be. My only – my takeaway and why, why I think it leans Republican as opposed to toss-up in our ratings, at least for now, is that I think New Jersey, too, profiles as the kind of district where – I think Trump probably would win again and also might have the potential to do even better than he did last time uh, because, again, it, it's, it's kind of one of those uh, uh, more kind of white working class districts, although there, are, there, there is some diversity in that district too, um, but it's a place where the Democratic vote really dropped quite significantly from 2012 to 2016, uh, and also Republicans did pretty well recently in the uh, uh, state-level New Jersey elections uh, uh, last month, although you know, a, a state legislative election is a lot different than a presidential year in terms of turnout and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now what I'm going to do is jump all the way across the country because I want to ask you about of the state of Arizona. Now, historically, if my memory serves, Bill Clinton carried Arizona once, and then you got to go uh, back a long, long way. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> to right. Find, that's right. Uh, Dem- Democrats uh, really honing in on that state on a national level. Now, new polling has Mark Kelly up, I believe, by three points on Martha McSally. In, in the Senate race there for next year. Are we looking at Arizona as a chief battleground state, or is it possible in some way that both Donald Trump and Mark Kelly could win in Arizona next year? It's possible. I would expect the, the Senate and the presidential race to track pretty closely uh, with, with with one another, although – um, in, in the, you, you cite that poll about Mark Kelly being a few po- points up in the Senate race. Uh, this, the presidential components of that polling showed Trump leading, although by, by, by negligible margins uh, against the Democrats, there was some variability in, the, in that polling. But uh, I, would, I would expect at the end of the day that they would track pretty closely. But even if there is uh, you know, a limited amount of crossover for Kelly, uh, maybe he could win while Trump would win the state. I, I think I think Arizona is a bona fide presidential toss-up. Um, uh-huh. it, it is the kind of state that um, it just seems to be trending uh, Democratic these days. You know, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's, all, it's, it, it, it's kind of similar to like a Nevada or Colorado in that while, yes, there are significant pockets of population that live outside the sort of big city, uh, it is also kind of a city state the way that Nevada and Colorado are in that uh, I believe that 
about 60% of all the statewide votes are cast just in Maricopa County, which, of course, is where Phoenix is. Maricopa is one of the few big urban counties that still votes Republican at the presidential level, but uh, it was pretty close in in, um, in 2016, uh, and I think that, that uh, you know, the Democratic presidential nominee could carry Maricopa in 2020, which uh, Maricopa does not always – uh, you know, predict the, the statewide winner, but um, I, I usually does. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, and 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 I I even think that you know I know Democrats are uh, I, I think the, the the easiest and most logical way for Democrats to get the presidency back is to hold what they won in 2016 and to win Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which were all uh, Trump states by less than a point. Uh, but you know, there's a, there's I think Democrats are concerned specific, specifically about Wisconsin. Well, you know, there's a world in which I think, uh, uh, you know, if Wisconsin's 10 electoral votes went to Trump again, Democrats could potentially replace those with with Arizona's 11. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and if you would pair Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Arizona together, um, that that would be, you know, again, sufficient to get the Democrats the presidency back. So I'm I'm very bullish on Arizona for Democrats. That doesn't mean I necessarily think they're going to win it. But I, you know, I again, I think it's a bona fide toss-up, the same way that uh, that I think Wisconsin is. All right, and with that, I'm going to throw it back to David. David. Yes. Well, Kyle, we thank you so much for coming on the Kudzu Vine tonight. Um, just before you leave, uh, we want to give you a chance to share with our listeners how they can find you on social media, how they can read your work at uh, Crystal Ball and Center for Politics. Just kind of share all those um, details with the listeners. Sure. Thank you. Uh, so I'm uh, pretty active on Twitter at K Condit, K-K-O-N-D-I-K. Uh, the Crystal Ball newsletter, uh, again, comes out uh, usually every every Thursday morning. Uh, if you go to centerforpolitics.org backslash crystal ball uh, or just Google Sabados Crystal Ball, you will find us. And we have a uh, free email uh, distribution uh, list so you can just uh, sign up. Uh, on our website, or just email us at uh, goodpolitics, one word, goodpolitics, uh, at uh, virginia.edu. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on. I know we're going to continue to read your work and use it when we talk on our show. And if you're so willing, sometime in 2020, we'd love to have you on again. Absolutely. Thank thanks you, for sir. Having me. Yes. Thanks, guys. Good night. Thank you. Night. Um, well, and Tim, uh, we have maybe a minute or two left, um, but it was great to have Kyle on. We kind of took him all across the country, and he didn't miss a beat, and mm-hmm. that was great. I guess we didn't really finish up the the Trump uh, uh, campaign plan. I, I'm going to make a final comment for me, and then you make a final comment for you. I think my favorite part was when I read that Jared Kushner said, "You know, we've been adding people like me." Um, you know, that used to not be Republicans as a Republican. <laughs> of course, he's a family member. Um, so I kind of have a funny feeling that a lot of educated New York city dwellers are not really the new Trump base, unless you're a member of the Trump family. Um, what was something that kind of stuck out to you in that report? Um, they claim that 9 million Trump voters did. Uh, no, they described them not as Trump voters, but as the hardcore Trump voters, that that they didn't vote in 2018. 
I, I, I think the hardcore Trump voters were out there voting. There, there might have been some um, independent conservatives that didn't vote with them or something. But, but for them to say that and to stick that as a talking point, I, I just thought that that was that was a bit odd. Uh, <laughs> so you know. Oh, another yeah. thing. Another thing. They think impeachment is a plus. It's almost as if they're saying, yeah, we want the president to be impeached because it'll help him get reelected. I don't see the logic in that. I mean, I understand wanting to win, but to go down in the history books as one of three presidents to be impeached, uh, they're, they're willing to do that in order to just win re-election. That's, that's pretty odd, don't you think? Most definitely. Um, I think it'll be interesting to kind of see how the campaign unfolds and how it matches up with this report as the you know months go forward. Now, of course, mm-hmm. a lot of it's going to have to be um, you know who the nominee is. That's going to affect, and also um, you know of course the impeachment proceedings are going to affect. And I think there's parts like you know making the campaign all about Hunter Biden seemingly at this point. That's not going to be on the plan, even though. It's obviously in the plan, if you will. Well, um, until next week, uh, enjoyed having uh, Kyle Kondik on for the first time. And that's been the Cozy Vine. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.